On the morning of September 11, 2001, a call went out to a 911 dispatcher from a man named Kevin Cosgrove. He's trapped in the northwest corner of the 105th floor in the south tower of the World Trade Center. He's shaken and upset and his voice is full of desperation. Cosgrove had gone to work like any other day as a senior executive for a multinational financial services firm. And there's no way he could ever know what he was about to walk into. Dense, pungent smoke is filling the building at this point and Cosgrove is pleading with the dispatcher trying to find out when help will arrive. And the dispatcher tries to comfort him with platitudes like help is on the way or hang in there. To which Cosgrove responds, quote, you can say that you're in an air conditioned building. We're not ready to die, unquote. Not long before his call, a Boeing 767 was deliberately crashed into the south face of the South Tower at 500 miles per hour at 9.03 a.m. The plane struck through floors 77 and 85. Cosgrove was on the 105th floor. He had tried to make his way down a stairwell, but the smoke was too thick at the 79th floor, so he had to turn back. We couldn't imagine the languid and noxious smell of millions of tons of cement, electrical wire, computers, steel, drywall, window glass, and bodies incinerated by fires feeding on tens of thousands of liters of jet fuel, all smoldering into a smell of death and plastic. And it was so hot. There are reports of people who were standing on their desk because the floors were so scorching. And then there's an overwhelming torrent of sound. The top part of Tower 2 folded in on itself and began to collapse. And the last words Cosgrove was able to utter was, Oh God, oh, and the call abruptly ends. And he is one of the 2,977 people who died in the terrorist attacks in America that day. Everyone, welcome to another episode of the Humanity Archive podcast. I am your gracious host, Jermaine Fowler, and today I have a story from recent history that I'm sure everyone has heard before, but maybe you've never heard it in the way that I'm going to tell it. This is a story of trauma and grief and national tragedy in one of the most terrible days in modern American history. This is an episode on September 11, 2001. Now let's get into it. Context matters, and if you don't know what led to an event, you won't know why it's happening and how it affects you and your life. The Humanity Archive brings you the full story, the story that isn't fully captured in the superficial stuff you find in textbooks. 
I like to go bone marrow deep into these stories and I want to make you think and I want to make you question and learn and grow and feel. And so I'm asking you to become a financial supporter of the Humanity Archive right now so I can continue sharing not just what happened, but why. So I need you to pause this episode right now and head over to patreon.com backslash the Humanity Archive. Support the show for as little as $2 a month. Again, that's patreon.com backslash the Humanity Archive. And you can also support the Humanity Archive and all I do here by buying my debut history book, The Humanity Archive, Recovering the Soul of Black History from a Whitewashed American Myth. Tap the links in the show notes to support or head over to barnesandnoble.com, Amazon, or wherever you get your books. More than a billion people watched the destruction of 9-11 on that morning in 2001 unfold live on TV, and I was one of them. If you're old enough to recall, I wonder if you remember where you were when it all happened. I was a freshman in high school, and I remember being in an art class, and we were working with paper mache, and the assignment was to craft an anthropomorphic animal. You know, an animal with human characteristics. And I was a big boxing fan at the time. So I was crafting a tiger as a heavyweight boxer. I was trying to make something fierce. And I think it came out looking like something whimsical and goofy. Tony the Tiger with red boxing gloves and blue trunks on. But I remember standing there crafting this tiger with thick, gooey, slathering newspaper pulp on my hands. And the intercom comes on saying something terrible has happened. And then my teacher rushes over to the TV and turns on CNN, which flashed a headline that read breaking news, World Trade Center disaster. And at this point, the reports were unconfirmed, but they were gathering that a plane crashed into the North Tower and it was just so surreal and scary. And then one reporter just said, good Lord, there are no words. And that was at 8.46 a.m. And then at 9.03, we literally saw the second plane thunder into the second tower. And that is when everyone knew that this was an orchestrated attack. That This was no accident. And I can only imagine if people had cell phones that had a video like they do now where people can record and post on social media in real time. But that wasn't a thing yet. And so. This live news coverage like this really isn't something we had seen before. This wasn't a norm at all then. Now, I thought long and hard about how I wanted to cover this event in human history, in American history, because it's been covered from a thousand different angles. People talk about how 9-11 changed war. They talk about the moral panic of the aftermath of 9-11 and the criminalization of immigrants. They talk about discouraging terrorism. They talk about Al Qaeda, nationalism, patriotism, George W. Bush. I mean, there are so many ways to look at this, but I want to focus on the suffering and the heroism and the humanity. And a lot of people would try and crucify me for that. They will say 9-11, but like 9-11 was a tragedy, but look at all the innocent people America has terrorized over the years. And I understand the place of skepticism and even pain that that sentiment often comes from. But how emotionally callous can you be when people do this? It's always an attempt to redirect an argument. The argument I'm making here, for instance, that we should honor 9-11 victims. And then to say in response, though, well, what about the victims elsewhere? It's a logical fallacy, right? It's a red herring. It's a deflection. Like in time, we can have a dialogue about all the victims who find themselves in the death throes of power. 
whether it be from a terrorist organization or a government, but it's so morally bankrupt to me because I think the people who do this don't typically care about anyone's suffering. They're just trying to prove a point. Now, don't get me wrong. I feel very strongly about the aftermath of 9-11 and the way politicians use fear and Islamophobia to engage in never-ending wars on terror waged in the Middle East and North Africa after the attacks, but... I can critique the abuse of American power and still think about the victims. It's not an either or. I could also talk about Osama bin Laden or how people become radicalized in the first place or the flawed communication systems that slowed the efforts of first responders. For instance, the police had put many helicopters in the air and from that angle, they got advanced warnings of the collapses. But here's the thing. The police used different radio channels from the fire department. And since this information isn't available, then many firefighters and first responders were telling people to stay put when they should have been telling them to evacuate. So there's whole books on what went wrong and how people could have, what, how should have responded better, or even how 9-11 could have been prevented. I could even dive into the conspiracy theories that are and were very popular. You've probably heard the phrase inside job in spite of government agencies and independent engineers describing the physics of how the towers came down. Many said that the planes that flew into the twin towers could not have brought them down and it had to be caused by strategically placed explosives. But I don't want to talk any more about any of that in this episode. I want to focus on the lives lived and those affected and try to wrestle with that hope and despair. And there are so many people still alive who live through the horror of that day. And we might question if this story needs to be retold. But I think that now it has been over two decades. So there is a whole generation of people alive right now who have no personal knowledge of what happened. And for that reason, I do think these stories need to be told and retold for each generation. On the Sunday before September 11th. Shirley Henderson had a dream or perhaps a nightmare that turned out to be eerily prophetic in this dream. She was in a cave and she was digging and there were others digging around her. And then she looked up to see a bright light beckoning her to come into another corridor of the cave. And when she got there, she saw her baby son lying there in the fetal position. And the reason the dream was prophetic was because her husband, Ronnie L. Henderson, was in Tower One. He was a veteran firefighter with Engine Company 279 who decided to become a firefighter back in the late 1970s because he wanted to knock down the racial barriers that had for too long kept black people out of the fire department. He wanted to see black people better represented as the faces of first responders. And on 9-11, he found himself heroically breaking through barriers to get into the World Trade Center to save lives. But. Because of her dream of digging through the rubble in that cave searching, Shirley would go on to say, quote, the minute that building went down, I felt the part of me die, unquote. The plane that hit the North Tower tipped its wings just before it impacted the building, cutting through seven floors like a knife to butter and significantly damaging columns. Ronnie's engine was located just across the Brooklyn Bridge from Manhattan, so it was one of the first vehicles to be dispatched to the tragedy. Engine Company 279 lost four firefighters that day, and Ronnie L. Henderson was one of them. He would never emerge from the rubble. A man who loved his wife and children, he was 52 years old. A religious man, always with the Bible in reach, surely said she found solace in the thought that he was now in the kingdom of God. 
We'll talk more about what was happening on the ground, but what about up in the sky? Some harrowing messages were being sent from those on the hijacked planes. And calls were being made on airphones that were on the back of the plane seats and from cell phones. Most were calls to loved ones. A 39-year-old man named Brian David Sweeney was a passenger on flight 17. And he left a voicemail for his wife, Julia, mere four minutes before his plane crashed into the South Tower saying, quote, Jules, this is Brian. Listen, I'm on an airplane that's been hijacked. If things don't go well and it's not looking good, I just want you to know I absolutely love you, he said. I want you to do good. Go have good time. Same to my parents and everybody. And I just totally love you. And I'll see you when you get there, unquote. This stuff is heartbreaking, and what strikes me about some of these calls was how calm a lot of these people were, you know? I wonder what I would have done had that been me up there. But what I have said, if I knew it, was my last phone call, but I think there is some beauty here. I mean, you're on a hijacked airplane like 31,000 feet in the air, and you're plummeting and realizing this is the end, and in that moment, not thinking of yourself, but showing compassion for your loved one, trying to comfort them selflessly. C.C. Lyles, a flight attendant on United Airlines Flight 93 and in fight or flight mode, the passengers on her airline apparently put it up to a vote about whether or not to fight back against the hijackers and they decided to do so. And their plane was headed to the nation's capital, perhaps the White House, when it crashed into a field in Pennsylvania. So the passengers did not regain control of the plane. But who knows how many lives they saved because of their heroism? Just imagine the repercussions had the plane hit the White House. But that plane crashed and killed all 44 people aboard, including the four hijackers. And CeCe's phone call went like this. Quote, Hi, baby. I'm, you have to listen to me carefully. I'm on a plane that's been hijacked. I'm on the plane. I'm calling from the plane. I want to tell you that I love you. Please tell my children that I love them very much. And I'm so sorry, baby. I don't know what to say. There's three guys. They've hijacked the plane. I'm trying to be calm. We're turned around and I heard there's planes that have been flown into the World Trade Center. I hope to be able to see your face again, baby. I love you. Bye. Unquote. Back on the ground, we encounter Lieutenant Adrian Walsh, who served with Ladder 20 and had been with the FDNY since 1997, rising through the ranks and becoming the second woman in the department's history to be assigned to Special Operations Command of Squad Company 18. So she urgently rushes toward the towers after they have been hit. As a lieutenant, the duty of her leadership role required her to be on the front line to encounter any given situation and delegate what needs to be done to respond to a disaster. So when she finally could get to the scene, the South Tower had already fallen and emergency services were stretched so thin, there really wasn't a lot of people to delegate to. She had to jump right in. And remember, Tower 1, or the North Tower, was hit at 8.46 a.m. Eastern Time and collapsed at 10.28 a.m., while Tower 2, or the South Tower, was hit at 9.03 a.m. and collapsed at 9.59 a.m. So the South Tower collapsed first. Here's what Walsh had to say, quote, I remember when you got to City Hall. The 
It's almost as if you entered. It's almost as if it was a curtain and you walked into a curtain. The sky disappeared. There was air and bright light on this side. And there was just gray dust that you could barely see on this side. It was just like walking through a theatrical curtain. There's this six inches of dust on the ground. We parked right across from the plaza. And I remember getting out. I had no mask because our rig was already down there. Our guys were already down there. So I went to the back of the rig to try to see if there was another mask, another air pack for me. And I remember going around to the rig, around the back side of the rig. And as I got to the back side of the rig, I looked up. And I don't know why I looked up because I didn't hear anything. But I saw what I can only describe as almost like a tornado hurtling toward me. Just this cloud of dust that had to be over 100 feet in the air. And it was literally circling. And it was just bearing down. I mean, I'd never seen anything like that and anything move as fast as that. And I turned around and I yelled, run, run, Cap, run. Because the captain was behind me and he looked up. We all took off down the block. And I thought honestly, I honestly thought in the midst of all that. If this is going to come down and it's going to fall all at once as a building, if I could beat the cloud, I'll beat the building. And I said to myself as I turned and started to run, I'm not going to beat this cloud. It's just moving too fast. Unquote. People didn't really know what they were running into as of 2021. Around 24,000 people have been diagnosed with 9-11 related cancers. But again, most people were running away from the towers as they collapsed. Your DNA level survival instincts would be telling you, go, go, go as far away as possible. All while sirens are screeching and people are screaming and the sun is blocked by a plume of dust. But here you have first responders like Adrian and Ronnie and so many others who went to the disaster. That to me is the definition of heroism, defenders of life, protectors of life, bravery and fortitude and action and service to human life. 343 firefighters died along with many police officers and EMS workers. Lieutenant Adrian Walsh went on to talk about how there were all of these fires to put out from the burning debris, but the water mains were broken. So you'd go from hydrant to hydrant trying to find pressure, checking on the injured along the way. And in the rubble, a lot of things were disintegrated but then you'd go past something like a desk fully intact and realize that the person who used to sit in it was likely dead and in all that surreal confusion having the presence of mind to keep helping others in this landscape of despair and disarray lieutenant walsh's account is a stark tribute to the resilience the profound courage to persist when the world itself seems to have crumbled amidst the fragments of a shattered reality hydrants without water debris that burned And death that remained unnervingly untouched lies a relentless quest for normalcy, a single-minded mission to help, to save, to serve. And in such moments, our understanding of heroism is redefined and magnified. There's a series of photographs by photojournalist Bolivar Arellano, who had been lifted four feet into the air, elevated by the explosion from a tower he was nearby. He passed out, and when he came to a steel beam that had penetrated the building he was in, was inches from his head. As he emerged from the building, he overheard another survivor ask someone, quote, have you seen the photographer? I'm sure he's dead, unquote. And then everyone was happy to see he was alive. His leg was busted and bloodied, but he decided to photograph, and he took a photo of a bleeding woman. In the realm of all this chaos and devastation, 
Arevano's lens captured fragments of humanity that defy articulation, rising up from his near brush with death, a steel beam just barely missing him. His photographs, though haunting, serve as indelible imprints of courage and despair, moments of life and death frozen in time. One picture he took was of a man jumping from a tower. And then another picture later of three other men running past the slumped over body of a person who just jumped. And I'm not even sure if jump is the right word for it, is it? Those people were forced into that situation and chose a quick death rather than a horrible one. Imagine you're in one of these upper floors. Not only are you rocked to your core by the impact of the plane, but then there's this inferno. Because when they are full, a Boeing holds around 24,000 gallons of jet fuel, which is pure kerosene. So temperatures soared up as high as 1,000 degrees Celsius or 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit, and the floors are weakening beneath you. And you wouldn't have known, but columns dislodge the fireproofing around the steel columns holding up the building. And so there is an inward bowing of the perimeter columns as the building is collapsing minute by minute. Even if the sprinklers were working, they couldn't put out a kerosene fire. And you have no way downstairs or blocked by debris or you can't make it and your skin is blistering, cracking and turning red from the heat. And you feel the cool breeze from outside because the window in front of you is shattered. At that point, you realize there is no chance of survival. And I want to be clear on this because these people did not commit suicide. They were murdered. They were going to die. And it was a matter of an agonizing decision of how. And so they decided to escape by going over the edge, choosing what was an instantaneous death rather than burning alive. What did they think in those 10 or so last seconds as they were compelled by gravity to hit the ground? Many researchers have estimated that around 200 people fell to their deaths. Remember, these are 110 story buildings, and that is 1,362 feet approximately. And from skydiving, we know that it takes about 10 seconds to fall your first 1,000 feet, after which you hit terminal velocity, and then it turns into 5.5 seconds per 1,000 feet. Perhaps one of the most famous photographs of one of the many falling bodies was called the falling man. And it is a photograph taken by associated press photographer, Richard drew. I can never forget this image as the man in black pants and a white shirt is plummeting down, not flailing, but straight like a perfect spear, perfectly bisecting the North and South tower, which are behind him. The New York times ran it on September 12th, 2001 and the photos caption read quote, a person falls headfirst after jumping from the North Tower of the World Trade Center. It was a horrific sight that was repeated in the moments after the plane struck the towers, unquote. Many people were outraged and appalled and many other news outlets who shared the photo took it down. Perhaps it was just too soon to run frightful photos like this. But these things are a little easier to think about and reflect on with the passage of time. And in 2021, journalist Tom Junod wrote Another take on what the photo meant when he said, quote, although he has not chosen his fate, he appears to have in his last instance of life embraced it. If he were not falling, he might very well be flying. He appears relaxed, hurtling through the air. He appears comfortable in the grip of unimaginable motion. He does not appear intimidated by gravity's divine suction or by what awaits him. His arms are by his side, only slightly outriggered. 
His left leg is bent at the knee almost casually. His white shirt or jacket or frock is billowing free of his black pants. Some people who look at the picture see stoicism, willpower, a portrait of resignation. Others see something else, something discordant, therefore terrible. Freedom. There is something almost rebellious in the man's posture as though once faced with the inevitability of death, he decided to get on with it. As though he were a missile, a spear bent on attaining his own end. He is 15 seconds past 9.41 a.m. Eastern Time, the moment the picture is taken, in the clutches of pure physics, accelerating at a rate of 32 feet per second squared. He will soon be traveling at upwards of 150 miles an hour. And he is upside down. And the picture is frozen. And his life outside the frame he drops and keeps dropping until he disappears, unquote. We'll never know all the details of how so many others died inside the towers or on the planes or at the Pentagon. Thinking about all this brings me back to that age old philosophical question. Is it rational to fear death? I mean, we are by and large a death denying culture. No one wants to face it, but it is the greatest inevitability of our lives. Colonel Marilyn Willis, a congressional affairs officer who wrestled with death, survived the attack on the Pentagon where 184 people died and came back to work 13 days later, saying, quote, when I came back, the worst thing was the smell. You could smell the fumes. You could smell the burning bodies. You could smell the burning wires. You could smell it all. I walked down the hallways and I would think that I saw ghosts, unquote. And as we talk about so often here, the past is not the past. The emotional side of this history still haunts so many people. Liz Alderman had a son, Peter, who died in the North Tower and who was last seen at a breakfast conference. He'd sent out an email at 925 a.m. about the intense smoke on the 106th floor. Then he vanished. His death was a mystery. And his mother says, quote, the most important thing I will never know. I won't know how much he suffered and I won't know how he died. I travel back into that tower a lot and I try to imagine, but there is no imagining, unquote. Indeed, there are some people who will never know. And as of 2021, there were 1,106 victims whose remains had not been identified or found. I mean, think about that. There are hundreds of people still hoping that Detectives will finally come to their home to say that their dearly departed loved ones have been identified and hopefully bring some kind of closure. Like they did for the family of a woman named Dorothy Morgan, the 1,646 World Trade Center victim to be identified through DNA testing. She was an insurance broker in the North Tower, a New York Times article on the work reads, quote, for 20 years, the medical examiner's office has quietly conducted the largest missing persons investigation ever undertaken in the nation. Testing and retesting the 22,000 body parts painstakingly recovered from wreckage after the attacks. Scientists are still testing the vast inventory of unidentified remains for a genetic connection to the 1,106 victims, roughly 40% of the ground zero death toll who are still without a match so that their families can reclaim the remains for a proper burial, unquote. Now, I'm not sure that telling someone you found the charred remains of their mother or husband or sister can really bring closure. And as the daughter of Dorothy Morgan, Nikea Morgan pointed out, quote, at this point, what is it that you're sifting through? Unquote. 
But I do applaud the efforts of all the scientists who are painstakingly working on this to this day, but I'm not sure if I'd want them to continue looking. If it was one of my family members there, others who would, I'm sure. But back on another note, what is closure anyway? I think it's about wanting pain to end, the feeling of loss to end, the feeling of grief to end. And as someone who has lost people near and dear to me, I can say that there is no such thing as closure. I feel like that's a pop psychology word to make us feel good. We never get over the loss of those we hold dear. And that is OK. What do you really want to? What we can hope for, though, is this, that the razor sharp edges of grief will wear down over the course of time. And while we never can fully escape that suffering, we learn to manage it. It is impossible to cover the entirety of September 11, 2001, the shock, the fear, the anger, the momentous sadness. And I can't help but keep thinking about all the heroic deeds. There are just an overwhelming number of stories when you talk about 50,000 people who worked in the Twin Towers and all the New Yorkers with families there and the 23,000 that worked at the Pentagon. So many stories to tell. We could talk about Benjamin Clark, a former Marine and chef at Judiciary Trust Company who's credited with saving hundreds of lives, making sure that everyone on the 96th floor safely exited the building. He then paused on the 78th floor to assist a woman in a wheelchair. And he died when the building collapsed. Or what about William Rodriguez, a maintenance worker in the basement of the North Tower when American Airlines Flight 11 crashed into the tower? He had keys to all the emergency exits, and so Rodriguez bravely led firefighters up the stairs, unlocking doors as they climbed, helping to save hundreds of people. What about Ronald Buka, whose body was found in the rubble of the South Tower? They think he placed his coat protectively around several civilians for it was later found still wrapped around their bodies. There are so many stories of those who weren't even at the towers, who ran up there to help and who died. So yes, 9-11 was a national atrocity in American history, but even more, and what I wanted to highlight in this episode, was the very personal catastrophe of all those who died and who lost loved ones. So I want to end in a moment of silence and remembrance for the victims and send love and goodwill to their families. And that is the end of this episode, everyone. 9-11. Don't forget, you can support the Humanity Archive podcast by heading over to patreon.com backslash the Humanity Archive for as little as $2 a month. I appreciate you listening. I appreciate your support. I appreciate you lending me your ears and learning with me here at the Humanity Archive. And I'll see you Next time.